This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. There's a difference between responding to someone and reacting to someone. When you're in a situation that is going on with someone, you have to respond. But we don't always have to be reactive. Welcome to the Sufi Heart Podcast with Omid Safi, featuring teachings and stories from the wisdom of the Islamic tradition. Omid invites you to a meditation on the transformative power of love and recalling the necessity of healing our own hearts through healing the world. If you'd like to support Omid's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Omid. So Omid Safi is a scholar in the Sufi tradition of radical love and founder of Illuminated Courses and Tours. Omid is a professor at Duke University specializing in Islamic spirituality and contemporary thought. Omid is among the most, is among the most frequently sought out Muslim public intellectuals in popular media, appearing in the New York Times, Newsweek, Washington Post, PBS, NPR, NBC, and CNN, and other international media. He has delivered the annual Martin Luther King keynote from the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel and preached at Ebenezer Baptist Church. His most recent book is Radical Love, which was published by Yale University Press. He has been nominated 10 times for Professor of the Year at Duke and UNC. He teaches courses on Islamic spirituality focused on the mystical poetry of Rumi, and the heart of the Quran. Through illuminated courses and the lead spiritually oriented tours to Turkey and Morocco through illuminated tours, which is where I met Omid Safi um, almost 10 years ago <laughs> for the first time in Turkey. Yeah. So Omid, we are privileged and really grateful for your presence and for your kindness and generosity to share with us your time, your presence, and just your faith and spirituality. Thank you. So let's, let's welcome. Thank you all so very, very much. Thank you for um, sharing your your time and your presence. I'm very, very touched to see my dear friend Nadia again. Um, and uh, we had a chance to travel with some 30 friends or so uh, in Turkey. And very, very honored to also have my friend Bina. Uh, joining us on the screen. Um, Bina joined us this past summer in in Turkey as well. 
um, and some new friends along along the way. So I'll just kind of start with a couple of things that are uh, at the um, at the heart of what I would love to share with you all for for today. Um, and uh, the, the basic uh, assumption is something that I think is fairly self-evident. And um, it's that notion that if you look around the world today, uh, you see us in a state of what in the South, where I call my home, uh, we call it a hot mess. Uh, everything is messed up. Uh, it is hard to find a realm of existence that is uh, functioning smoothly and harmoniously. Um, that starts from the most outward to the most inward. Um, at the most outward level, you see our beautiful little home, uh, this one little tiny dot, third rock from the sun, uh, seems to be burning up and um, the global warming is causing um, ice to melt at the poles and in Pakistan. Um, we see hurricanes with a ferocity that we haven't seen before. My, my family lives in Florida and um, it's, it's real. Um, even when people's lives and homes are spared, um, the devastation and destruction is, is real. Um, politically, it seems like we are living in a strange day and age. Um, there's a saying from the beloved uh, Prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, where he says that in the beginning, Islam came uh, as a stranger and it will come back in a in a strange way someday. And when you look around the world, this sure seems like a strange day. Um, there's so much that's happening that doesn't really jive with what we know in our hearts to be the best way and the most beautiful way. Um, you've got ex-presidents stealing classified information. Uh, you've got sexism and misogyny that are running rampant. Um, you've got hundreds of thousands of queer kids, teenagers, um, running away from home. Um, you've got veterans who are coming back from wars, uh, suffering from all kinds of PTSD without any uh, adequate measure of resources. Um, our racial wounds in this country alone uh, they're certainly not new, but uh, people are pouring fuel on them. Uh, Russia has invaded a neighboring country with impunity. And when you look around the world, um, women in my ancestral homeland of Iran are marching in the street for their right to be free, to choose whether and how they cover their bodies and their hair. Um, in India, we see um, anti-Muslim pogroms. The occupation and humiliation of our Palestinian sisters and brothers continues, aided and abetted and funded 
by the United States of America. Um, and in Italy, we just elected the most right-wing government since Mussolini. Sure. So this is a global issue, the issues of conflict and tension. Um, by talking about them, we're not creating them. We hope to shed some light on them and to figure out what to do. Much of what I've been talking about so far is at the level of environmental catastrophe, racial tensions, politics and economics. But if we can be quiet long enough and look a little bit closer to home, you see that it's not just that the kids are not doing well. Nobody's doing well. <laughs> um, the struggles are real. Um, families are under a lot of tension and pressure. Uh, relationships are under a lot of stress. And the generational bonds are stretched so much. That's not surprising. Uh, we, we are whole human beings. And if we are whole, and if we live through the heart, how can we not be responsive to the tensions and stress and pressure that's all around us? So what do we have to say? What do we have to do? Um, you know, this isn't some highfalutin academic exercise for me. This is really something deeply personal and very intimate um, what is it that our faith traditions and our spiritual traditions, whatever they are, whatever they happen to be, uh, including if we don't have a particular one that we identify with, how can they serve to help us live together, not just in peace, meaning absence of fighting, but actually with beauty? with dignity, with integrity, and with harmony. Um, the, the basic assumption that I have in, uh, in life is that I'm not talking about the faith of, um, as we would call him, the chosen one, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, or the Buddha, or Jesus, or um, Confucius, um, I'm not talking about their faith, but the religions that we find around us lived and practiced today. My basic assumption is that they are neither all good nor all evil. Uh, I think what religion is today is essentially a magnifier of whatever is in people's hearts. The people who come to the public arena with a desire for love, for compassion, for understanding. Um, if they have a faith tradition, it grounds them and it can amplify their impact. And the people who are coming to it with a sense of exclusivism and hatred, animosity, and even the desire to terminate their fellow human beings, uh, religion also amplifies their work and their, their reach. Um, so I don't have any desire here to argue that 
my faith tradition or anybody else's faith tradition is all good and that their fart smells like roses. Um, <laughs> it's, um, we're all these mingled, jumbled mess of extraordinary, luminous, life-saving teachings and practices and some extraordinary tribal, sexist, racist interpretations and practices that have also come down through the centuries. And if you think your faith is immune, then you probably just haven't looked hard enough. I know they're there in my tradition, and I think they're there in all of ours. So I think what I want to do, um, and do we have until uh, 2.30, 2.40, what's the time? 2.40. 2.40. I think what I want to do is just to talk for a little bit. Oh, even, even until 2.45. Okay, thank you. Um, about some of the aspects that I think my own faith tradition, um, which is uh, the Islamic tradition, the way of um, the Prophet Muhammad, having love and respect for all the women and men uh, who've also been sent by God. Um, some of them, we know their names and most of them we don't. So um, my faith calls for a certain measure of humility that I don't know all the prophets that God has sent to China or to the um, indigenous populations of this continent. And I know that they've been sent because that's what the Quran says, that to every people, prophets and sages have been sent. And so if I don't know them, then you assume a certain measure of respect, of thinking well and thinking lovely of, of people. Um, and so I'll just speak about the tradition that I do know and thinking about these issues of spirituality in a context of this world filled with conflict and tension, how can conflict um, be transformed, ideally, uh, into something that resembles harmony? So I'll start by saying that one of the things that I particularly appreciate about the faith of Islam is that it always operates on multiple levels and layers. Starting from the most practical that seeks to curb or at least restrain the harm that some of us can do to one another. And then it goes up from there into higher and higher codes of ethics and morality based on love and compassion. So I'll give you an example. There have been a few exceptions throughout the centuries. Um, one of Gandhi's great friends, Abdul Ghaffar Khan, being a famous one. But by and large, the Islamic tradition has not been a tradition of pacifism. What it has called for is putting limits around the use of force to know when are you allowed to use force to defend yourself, to defend your family, to defend your community, 
and to defend the weak and the vulnerable. Basic example, someone breaks into your home and they've got a knife pulled and you've got your babies in front of you. Um, whatever pots and pans I can get my hands on, I'm gonna use them to defend my babies. I may try to appeal to the reason of the intruder. I may ask them, don't they know that they're also somebody's baby? Remind them of the fact that they too have always been loved and that don't they have somebody that they love? And if that doesn't work, and if my babies are at risk, um, pots, pans, plates, um, you name it, it's fair game, right? Um, because not everybody on earth is an illuminated saint. And the same thing goes for, uh, and this has been a topic, for example, in um, a lot of religious thought. Is one allowed to use force, for example, to defend the Jewish population and the Roma during World War II? And you see Christian theologians like Bonhoeffer reluctantly come to the point of, yeah, if, if one has to use force to defend the weak and the vulnerable, you do. Just close. And then we're not stuck there. There's also these higher codes that we want to move towards. And understandably, that's where my own inclinations always go to. So a way that we tend to put it in, in the Islamic tradition is this. You start out at the most basic level. What's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. Uh, I'm not going to steal what's yours. And kindly, if you would, do not steal what's mine. Uh, mama, mama taught us right, so we say please. And so and that first level, it may not be the loftiest level of ethic, but it's that groundwork of if what is yours is yours and what is mine is mine, then presumably we wouldn't rape, we wouldn't commit murder, we wouldn't steal, we wouldn't occupy. And if we could imagine today's world without theft and murder and rape and occupation and war, well, it may not be heaven, but it's a hell of a lot better. It's a heaven of a lot better than what we've got. So I appreciate the fact that there's also this eyes wide open, quite realistic sense of the basic ground rule of law and morality before we start getting at the more elevated levels. The next level would be what's yours is yours and what's mine can also be yours. Mm -hmm. um, all of us sitting in this room have experienced that ethic at some point. And the example that I give people is um, a parent, usually a mother though, inshallah, not always, getting up in the middle of the night to feed their baby, even though they have not had eight solid hours of sleep 
for two plus years. Now, when you wake up in the middle of the night, you get up because your baby's crying and because their suffering moves you to action. You don't sit there and make a flow chart. You don't sit there and say, well, you know, does this child really need to feed again? I mean, they just ate four hours ago. And yes, their diaper is slightly soaked and saggy, but I'm sure that it can hold a lot more poop in it till the morning. Um, no, if you love the child, you put their well-being ahead of your own. And if you're sitting here, somebody in the middle of the night, again and again and again for thousands of nights in a row, made that choice for you. Right? That's love in action. That's love that is not about emojis. Love that is not about Valentine's Day. Love that is not only about a sexual relationship with only one other partner. But it's a love that creates community. It's a love in doing. Um, and then there might even be, you know, a higher and a higher level of love in which we stop thinking about mine and yours. Uh, any of you, any of us who've ever had a bad relationship, you know what that's like. Um, you know, you each turn into an accounting firm of here's my itemized reverse chronological list of everything that you've ever done wrong, which I've been saving for such a moment. And I took out the trash on Monday, September the 23rd and Wednesday, October 2nd. And meanwhile, you failed, blah, 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 blah. But sometimes when there's that real love, that real sense of being safe, being whole in a community, in a family, then you let go of what's mine and what's yours and you just live in love. Um, Rumi, the greatest poet that we've ever had, um, you know, he says at one point this beautiful line, you and I should live as if you and I never heard of a you and an I. Um, you and I should live as if you and I never heard of a you and an I. Um, let me come a little bit more towards the, the conflict transformation language. And I really appreciate the fact that you're calling this conflict transformation and not rushing to get to that conflict resolution. Um, conflicts sometimes take generations to create, and they might take just as long for them to be resolved. Um, but we can make them suck less. Um, and and that's, that's a good step in the right direction. Um, dignity and integrity, whether you're talking about things in your family or you're talking about things between Palestinians and Israelis, it's not a zero-sum game and it's also not a light switch. 
and we can and we should be taking lots of steps along the way towards something that is good and lovely. So let me kind of talk about some of the things that I think of as being important in this, um, in this conversation. One of them is that there's always a balance between the personal and the interpersonal on one hand, and then the larger issues that are systematic and structural. And I think it's really good to keep an eye on both. Sometimes, even as a person who studies the spiritual traditions and um, longs to have a life that carries the fragrance of living a life of beauty and love, I get very frustrated when I read a lot of the material on conflict resolution and conflict transformation because they seem reluctant to pull it to put it um, politely and unwilling to talk about some of the deeper structural issues. Um, most of the conflicts of the world, people aren't trying to resolve them in a therapist office. They take place in this real world where there, there, where there are extraordinary asymmetries of power. And oftentimes, whether it is a husband and wife looking at a divorce or to go back to that example, Palestinians and Israelis, one side has the fifth largest military force in the world and one side doesn't have the ability to drive freely on their ancestral roads or to go to school or for God's sake, to love somebody without having to declare it to the Israeli state. So these are not, this is not a conflict between two equals trying to figure out how to divide a pizza pie. And I think in any conflict resolution, conflict transformation conversation, it's really good to think about, are we looking at things in the context of interpersonal dynamics and where the issues of power where are the systematic and structural issues? And of course, even in those interpersonal issues, there's still matters of power at play. And here's one of the most obvious ones, gender. In matters of gender, the discrepancy of power isn't just physical that some men seem to be much larger, bigger, stronger than some women. It's that we live in a capitalistic society which attaches no value for all practical purposes to the most precious of tasks, which is the raising of our babies. And so in those families where people are blessed enough to have two parents, there is an asymmetry of childcare that falls on women, which goes uncompensated 
And oftentimes you see men being able to advance their careers at a much more rapid pace than their female partners do. And then when the time for divorce comes, the male partner is in a much more advantageous economic situation. So even when we're talking about conflict transformation in the context of a bad marriage or divorce, those structural, political, institutional issues are still there. Maybe a little bit less dramatic than they are in the case of Palestine, Israel, but they're still there. But I wanna begin with the interpersonal and just say a couple of observations that I think my tradition has to offer. And um, we don't have a monopoly on these. Virtually anything that I would say that is good and beautiful about my tradition, you can dig deep enough and find the same thing in some other tradition. Um, I just love it because it's closer to me. Um, people are getting really excited this week because you can see Jupiter in the sky with the naked eye. Um, we happen to love the moon because it's a little closer, so it looms larger for, for us. Um, And the same way with these, with these kind of teachings. So the first thing of it is that there's always a better way. There's always a lovelier way. And when we find ourselves in conflict, whether it is your parents, your partner, <laughs> um, these issues are not abstract for me. I have teenagers. Um, so we're, we're living through a lot of these. Um, a neighbor, a coworker. That there's a difference between responding to someone and reacting to someone. Um, when you're in a situation that is going on with someone, you have to respond. But we don't always have to be reactive. And if that asymmetry is not only about power, but also about beauty, about morality, Sometimes we might find ourselves in a situation that the person that we're facing is angry enough to be turning red, foaming at the mouth, um, reaching deep into their illustrious bag of curse words and picking out all the choice ones. Um, you know, hands on the hip, head going side to side, pulling out all the four letter words in a row. Okay, well, you know, we have to respond somehow. But we can do something better than just mirror that animosity back to them. Um, 
you know, you all know the insights of people like Gandhi and others that an eye for an eye just leaves the whole world blind or maybe with one eye. And there are these very simple practices that come up in our tradition. If you're dealing with somebody and as long as you're safe, um, sit down. Sitting down physically has a somatic effect on the way that we process anger. Um, one of the teachers that I went to, as long as, again, you're safe, um, said, sit on your hands. Because it's so easy to do this, mm. right? And it's very hard to be beautiful when you're doing this. So like, just sit on your hands and open up the chest and let the other person go on for 30 seconds and just watch the breath come into your heart and go back out. And at some point, there's a very subtle shift that I find to be helpful. I don't always succeed. I think I failed pretty miserably last night at, at doing this. Um, but it goes along this line. Our normal impulse when we're having a conflict with somebody is to say, how on earth could you do that? Right? How on earth could you think that it's appropriate for you to talk to me in this tone of voice? How on earth would you think that it's okay to have eaten a snack and leave the plate without putting it away? How on earth do you think it's okay to just leave a damp towel on the floor and a hundred times worse? So the first step is just to change the emphasis a tiny bit. How on earth could you do that? What must be going on in your life to have made you behave in that way? I wonder. I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly how you feel, because that's actually one of the lousiest things we can ever tell someone. You don't, and I don't. Only each one of us can know fully what it is to inhabit the lives and the bodies that we do. But I wonder, I wonder what it would be like to be in your situation, to be carrying the burdens that you're carrying, to be so tired as to just not have the stamina to pick up that plate and put it in the sink. Um, I wonder what it would be like to be carrying so many disappointments and failures recently that anger is one of the only ways that you have of lashing out because at the end of the day, you know that you're safe with me. Uh, you know that I have no choice but to love you because you look like my mother. <laughs> um, I think that change from how could you to, hmm, I wonder, how could you? What must be going on? That pause 
that reframing, that rephrasing can be, can be the start of something. Um, the Quran has this very beautiful line, um, وَلَا تَسْتَوَ الْحَسَنَةَ وَلَا سَيَّعَ بِالَّتِي هِيَ أَحْسَنَ Good and evil aren't equal. So repel evil with something that's more beautiful. Um, push back against it with what is lovelier. And it's possible that the person that at the moment you see as an adversary may become an dear old friend to you. Um, that recognition that our means, our method, our way, and the outcome are deeply connected to one another. That's something that we hear from Dr. King. That's something that we hear from a lot of the sages. And I think it's a really um, valuable insight that part of the transformation of the conflict it's about the way and it's about the method. Um, if we can zoom out just a tiny, tiny bit from the interpersonal, when it's your child or your grown child um, or your parents or your lover um, to the community level, the national level, the global level, um, one of the very beautiful and extraordinary teachings of the Prophet, um, uh, the Habib, the, the beloved Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, uh, we're celebrating his birthday this whole month, um, is one of the most extraordinary anti-tribal statements. Uh, in his society, you weren't an individual. You were always part of a tribe. And that tribal identity determined really who you were and who you are. Um, and in a very powerful, radical way, um, the teachings of the Prophet subvert that and they call all of us children of Adam. And it's this wonderful phrase, Bani Adam. Um, today we might have wished that the Arabic of the Quran would have said the children of Adam and Eve. Uh, but it says children of Adam. Uh, and so the saying of the prophet is that children of Adam, the members of humanity, are like members of one body. And if any part of us hurts, you hurt. I think about that in the context of we're actually caught up in this together. We're caught up in this human drama together. Um, you know, and we know, that we oftentimes have a very selective way 
of going about addressing questions of suffering. Um, I don't watch the news anymore because the video footage, with some exceptions, is designed to tantalize. Um, I read the headlines in some places that I trust and very selectively I'll watch the videos. But many of us have this tendency, particularly those of us who are immigrants or those of us that have roots in different parts of the world. Um, I admit, I read the news from Middle East and South Asia and North Africa a lot more carefully than I read the news from, I don't know, South Korea. Um, I have family in these parts of the world. My, my people are on the streets demonstrating these days, like actual members of my family, and I'm worried about them. I think that part is okay. What is less okay is when you've got refugees from the Ukraine and every church in my hometown had a Ukraine drive and every European country was like, well, we will welcome refugees from the Ukraine at the same time that they were publicly saying, but we don't want any African refugees. We don't want any Moroccan refugees. We don't want any Afghan refugees because they're darker, because they have a different religion, because they speak different languages. I think those are situations for us to be mindful of. When are the times that we have this selective identification with the pain and suffering of some at the expense of others? I think that's an important aspect of things. Um, and I'm mindful of the, the time. I want to make sure I leave a little bit of time um, just for some uh, questions. And, and if you like, I also have a couple of thoughts about some of the other readings that you all have been doing about John Lewis and about Dr. King and others and how they connect to this conversation. Um, but let me show you... Um, an image real quick. Um, can you all see this? I think you can, yeah. So um, this is from the book of Rumi's poetry. And I'll tell you kind of what's going on here. Uh, it, it ties to what we're talking about. So on the left-hand side, you see this um, brave warrior. He's sitting on a beautiful horse. He's got a halo around his head. He's got the biggest manliest sword you've ever seen. The horse is big. The sword is bigger than the horse. And he's slaying a dragon, right? Um, if any of you come from a Catholic background or a Greek Orthodox background, uh, you might have seen images uh, that look like this. St. George, for example, who slays the, the dragon. So this is um, Imam Ali. He is the uh, closest friend of the Prophet Muhammad. And there are no dragons uh, in 7th century Arabia that we know of, 
Um, but he has he is slaying the inner dragon. He is slaying his own inner demons. And the most famous story that we have about him is the story on the right hand side. And that's the one that I want to tell you the story of. So in um, Arabian society, to quote the greatest movie of all time, The Princess Bride, um, <laughs> when people wanted to go to war, they didn't just push buttons and drop bombs on each other. Um, to quote the movie, they would try to kill each other like civilized people. Uh, and how do you kill each other like civilized people? Well, before any swords are drawn, I would send forth a poet and you would send forth a poet. And we would have essentially a spoken word duel. And sometimes that was enough and one side would win and the other side would go home. And if that didn't work, instead of having to have two armies come and kill each other, our side would send forth our bravest warrior and the other side would send forth theirs and they would have a one-on-one -on -one combat. So that's the context of what's going on here. And what we're told in this story is that the pagan side, um, the side of the people who are oppressing the Muslims, they sent this guy who is as big as a mountain. He's a mountain man, literally. And nobody wants to fight him because they just look at him and he's huge. Ali volunteers to go fight. Um, and eventually the prophet lets him go. And the two of them go. And this mountain man has never been defeated in battle. He's always killed his opponents. And there's a cloud of dust. And what do people see? That Ali picks up this mountain man, throws him to the ground, sits on his chest, um, pulls out his dagger. This is my dagger. Um, and uh, it's a wand, actually. But... Um, uh, and, um, and he's about to finish him. And this mountain man is so disgusted at having lost his first battle that he spits on Ali's face. And Rumi takes 20 pages to finish the story because he's Rumi and because this is mystical poetry. So what happens in the rest of the story? Rumi says that Ali gets up from the fallen warrior's chest and he takes his sword and he puts it back in its sheath and he just starts pacing around in circles. And the warrior guy, the defeated mountain man, is really puzzled. And so he's like, um, what gives? You had the upper hand. You were sitting on my chest. You could have just finished me right there and you walked away. And Ali says, well, you might think that you're the mountain man because of your size, but I'm the real mountain here. Because to be a mountain, to have real strength, is to make sure that the winds of anger don't blow you here and there like you're some piece of straw. A real mountain is solid, is grounded, is rooted, 
And the only thing that's going to blow me away is to see the face of God, not anger. And then he's honest. He says, you spat on my face. I got angry. And I love that part. I mean, to be a saintly being, it doesn't mean you never get angry. Because if that's the standard, then we're all going to flunk. It means you get angry, but you sense it, you breathe deep into it, and you might even walk back a couple of steps from the conflict to make sure that the only thing that's going to motivate you is that constant desire to see God in the situation. And then they continue talking and they continue talking and eventually the mountain man says, wow, you know, this uh, beautiful faith of Islam sounds really fantastic. How do you sign up? And and Ali says, well, you know, it involves uh, a lot of uh, discipline and coming to terms with your heart. And the guy's like, that's what I want because I have muscles and I have muscles on top of my muscles and muscles on top of the muscles. But I want to figure out how to train my heart. So Ali welcomes him to the faith and the pagan warrior is now a Muslim warrior without bloodshed. So we like that part. But before the story ends, and this is where I will end, the warrior says, I think there's something more. When you beat me fair and square, when you sat on my chest and you had your sword drawn, you looked into my eyes and you saw something. And that something is what made you hesitate. And what was it? Ali's like, oh, nothing at all. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And the guy's like, come on, I'm, I'm, I'm a Muslim mountain now. You can tell me the secrets. And Ali says, okay, if you really want to know, and this is an exercise that one could do um, in a context, if, you know, the distance that most of you all are sitting in the classroom now, um, if you just turn to the person next to you and try to notice the color of their eyes, try it and tell me what you see. What do we have? Lots of different colors, blue and green and hazel and brown and yeah. And then, and then if you get closer and closer to the person, No touching, (laughs) no funny business. But if you allow yourself to get closer and closer to the other one, at some point you see in their eyes a reflection of yourself. You see the image of yourself in their eye. And by the way, in many Muslim languages, the word for the pupil of the eye, the black part of the eye, is the human. 
or the little human in some other languages. Ali says, when I was sitting on your chest and I looked into your eye and I was about to kill you, I looked down and in your eye, I saw a reflection of myself. And I realized then that if I were to kill you, I would have killed myself. That's what it is to see fellow human beings as a mirror. It's that deep recognition that we're in this together. We're bound together. We're not isolated human beings. I do not end at the tip of my fingers and nor do you. It's really much more akin to the air that permeates the room that you're in, the room that I'm in, it flows out the window, across the hills, over the trees, and connects all of us. What you do to one directly affects everyone indirectly. So this is where I wanna balance where we started with the very practical sense that we start by taking care of the ones who are hungry, clothing those who are naked, giving shelter to those who are homeless, stopping the innocents from being slaughtered. I don't wanna go to that idealistic space that says, we're all in this together, which means we're all experiencing things equally. No, we're not. We're not. Some of us are bearing this pain and this suffering and this trauma onto the level of ourselves. And for some African-Americans, Native Americans, for three generations now, Palestinians, we're talking about multi-generational pain and trauma. So it doesn't mean that if you don't come from those communities that your life is all hunky-dory. No, you still hurt. You still have pain. You just may not have multi-generational, systematic, structural pain and suffering. But what happens to one impacts all and the goal that we have is to liberate everyone there's a wonderful saying of the prophet this really is the last word come to the aid of your sister your brother whether they are the oppressed or the oppressor and the prophet um, shares that with his community. And some of them say, you know, oh, messenger of God, uh, would that we could give our lives for you. We get it, what it would be to come to the aid of the oppressed. But how do we help the oppressor? Why do we help the oppressor? And the prophet says, you help the oppressor by stopping him. even for the ones who are doing the oppression, 
we also wish for them a life that is free from the tyranny that they're imposing on others and on themselves. But we start with the ones who have the knife at their throat. We start with the hungry and the homeless and the exiled and the weak, because that's where God is. God is always with the weak and the marginalized. So um, brown people like to talk a lot. Um, I'm, a, um, I'm a brown man and I like to talk a lot. So forgive me for not having left a lot of time for uh, questions and discussions, but um, I hope something in here is at least um, somewhat beneficial. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. <laughs>